Hello and welcome to this at any rate podcast. I am Arindam Sandilia, part of JP Morgan's Global FX Strategy team. Now generally we do these podcasts on a weekly basis to discuss the market relevant themes of the day, but today's edition has a slightly different flavor. I'm joined by a number of my colleagues today to discuss the 2023 year ahead outlook publication that was released yesterday. Meera Chandan, Benjamin Shatel, James Nelligan, Patrick Locke and Antonin Delair. To all of you, welcome. Um, as for the global backdrop for next year, uh, it's one where uh, risk markets are hoping to get some relief from a pause in the stupendous pace of rate hikes from the Fed that we've seen this year. Yet, uh, the uncomfortable fact is that 5% terminal Fed funds is not good news for many markets, and certainly not if it's maintained there for an extended period of time. And there's a real prospect that the U.S. could enter a recession at some point next year. Our house baseline is for a shallow one beginning in the fourth quarter of 2023, but there remains considerable dispersion of views amongst clients regarding the timing, depth, and the likelihood of such a recession. So given this backdrop, Mira, maybe we'll start with you on the top-down U.S. dollar view. The global outlook from our economists look far from rosy, yet uh, one pitfall of this year's uh, stonking 9% rally in the big dollar is that starting levels for next year look uh, quite a bit less appealing than at the turn of 22. So uh, how are you thinking about the delta in the dollar macro for next year and particularly about this trade-off against somewhat unattractive valuations? Sure, thanks a lot, Arindam. So just to state up front, heading into 2023, um, the baseline outlook is still calling for additional dollar strength. Um, our outlook is uh, titled, uh, this isn't over and reflects that view, but I think you have to look under the hood to, um, to sort of uh, um, glean that actually there are gonna be some key differences between 2022 and 23. So that's, that's worth highlighting. Um, I think taking a step back, um, you know, let's just talk about the two main macro themes that um, will characterize and differentiate 23 from 22. Uh, the first one is, um, as you noted, or in the uh, central banks will be moving from a synchronized hiking cycle to a synchronized high hold. So we are looking for the Fed to get to 5% and they stay there for the entire year uh, and they go on pause um, by the end of Q1. Uh, the second theme is the U.S. recession, uh, which is now part of our base case and uh, basically slowing global growth environment, which should limit how much China and Europe can actually rebound from here. Uh, so these two factors do have a very significant impact on the FX landscape. Um, the first one, central banks coming to a pause, a high hold, should mean that the lowest yielding currencies that were really doing the worst this year, you know, Japanese yen, uh, euro in part as well, um, you know, some of them, then they're, they're actually not going to do that badly next year. So some of the pressure is going to come off of them and somehow some of them could uh, perhaps even recoup and rebound. Uh, the second one is around recession risks and growing recession risks. It's not just a U.S. issue. It's a global issue. China and Europe vulnerabilities remain. And basically, the idea is that markets will be uh, emphasizing even more the late cycle dynamics for 23. And that most acutely affects the high beta currencies that are very sensitive to global growth. And in fact, the argument we are making this time around is that the risks to this cyclical block of currencies is asymmetrically larger going into next year. Uh, in GTAN, this, uh, you know, this is coming from certain high hold uh, vulnerabilities uh, for high interest rates, uh, which impacts housing, for example. It's affecting currencies like Sweden, um, Canada, uh, New Zealand. 
Um, and more broadly speaking, you know, it's also thinking about, okay, as we're going into 23, central banks are going to be, the G4 central banks will be shrinking their balance sheets at the fastest pace since 2007. And actually, if you look at the external vulnerabilities um, in terms of external deficits, uh, those have gotten larger. FX reserve coverage ratios have got thinner as people have pushed back against, um, against dollar strength this year. So essentially, going into next year, some of the fundamental factors have deteriorated uh, quite a bit as well. And so if we get another growth shock or a volatility shock, then actually risks are asymmetric around high beta currencies. So in a nutshell, still looking for dollar strength, but of a slightly different variety in 22, it should be more dominated by high beta currencies like um, you know, uh, in, in, G, in G10, like commodity currencies, for example, or in uh, EM uh, places like EMEA. Uh, and uh, in terms of a specific forecast for the dollar, we are looking for a 2% strengthening in the DXY, but that kind of reflects predominantly a relatively muted move because it's DM dominated. But if you look at a broader uh, index, say, of uh, high beta currencies like emerging markets, uh, for example, our EM currency uh, index is forecast uh, by our EM team to actually weaken by 6% versus the dollar next year. So there's a pretty sharp decoupling between the funders and uh, the high beta currencies going into next year. Uh, the very last point I'll make, and I'll, um, I'll make it briefly, is that the dollar is rich on multiple metrics, no matter which way you look at it. Uh, but uh, the important things to keep in mind here are, firstly, that these mispricings can linger for a multi-year period. Um, and, and so, you know, usually need a cyclical boost to uh, mean reward. And the second thing is that if you look at the uh, the differentiation of valuations within currencies, actually that dollar richness is most pronounced uh, with very specific currencies, mostly in G10, mostly in relation to the Japanese yen. So we still think there is scope for differentiation within the high beta complex. Hey, thanks, Mira. Uh, so that's a fairly clear, uh, somewhat of a lower beta, compositionally different variation of this year's uh, a much more uh, powerful bullish dollar view. Uh, but let's think about things bottom up. Uh, now the big three that make up the dollar index, Euro, Yen, and CNY. We'll come to the uh, the other two in a bit, but how about the Euro view that you personally cover? Have you seen the worst of uh, European weakness this year? Um, sure. Look, we're looking for Euro dollar to retest, um, um, to retest 95. We got pretty close to that target this year. Um, and, you know, we do think that there's scope for, depending on how extreme the winter is and where stockpiles stand for the energy situation on the other side of winter, uh, we could see a break of 95 as well. But our baseline forecast is for 95, which is about uh, 8 cents lower than uh, where we are today. Um, you know, that's still, you know, assuming... Assuming if you if you look at what happened this year in 22, we had a 15 cent decline in a euro peak to trough. So that's basically half of that. So we're not necessarily calling for new lows, although we're not ruling those out either. But at the same time, I think I should highlight that we're not looking for any substantial rebound. We do not think that a Fed pause by itself is enough to make this rebound happen. Uh, the energy dependence issue is the primary and the number one factor. We, you know, this thing is not going away. Next year is going to be more competitive on the global landscape for them to get LNG supplies, and uh, and also pipeline supplies are going to be quite limited. So that remains an ongoing issue. Um, the, the ECB is high trades, um, so you know we are uh, probably approaching two and a half percent as far as uh, carry is concerned or implied yields are concerned, but that's not going to be enough to pull in out of the low yielder basket. That's still going to be 
euro within the bottom three or four currencies uh, in terms of yield globally. So it still remains a funder, still energy vulnerable. And uh, for a resounding rebound, what you need is a combination of Fed rate cuts and global growth really rebounding. And we think that's more a 2024 story where you would expect a rebound to 110 to 120, uh, but 23 should be still uh, very much a year of the doldrums and uh, a sluggish year uh, for euro dollar. Ben, moving on to you on Japan, as Mira mentioned in her opening remarks, uh, the yen was a big part of the broad dollar run-up this year. Uh, given that uh, the house view is one of a U.S. recession in the back half of 23. Uh, do you think this dollar uptrend can sustain given still U.S. hefty, U.S. minus Japan rate differentials and with or without a BOJ YCC tweak? Or do you think that we are in for a change of trend as recessionary dynamics stake hold in the U.S.? Okay. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Ari. So, look, I mean, the baseline is for dollar and lower next year, and I, I've got three points for you in terms of thinking about that. So, the first is the point that we all know, which is that the yen is the most sensitive currency amongst the G10 to rate differentials, and, and particularly, you know, what's been interesting this year is just how sensitive dollar yen has been to the front end of the yield curve. So, every ten basis points that we've seen in terms of Fed terminal rate pricing. Um, has been worth something like one, one and a half yen on, on dollar yen. So to your point, if we're talking about a U.S. recession and a move uh, toward pricing in cuts next year, I think it makes sense to be thinking about dollar yen lower. We've got you know low to mid 130s as our target for next year. The caveat of that, of course, is is that you know the opposite is also true. In a scenario where U.S. inflation is not coming down quickly enough, where the Fed isn't cutting, and you know where we're even seeing a terminal rate heading higher. Um, you know, Fed hiking all the way to 6% as a sort of hypothetical scenario. Can dollar yen get back up, back up to the 150s? I think it quite possibly can, but that, that's not the baseline view at this point. So the second point, as I say, is for a bit of a, a trend reversal in the dollar yen, so dollar yen lower, but we're not looking for a, a sort of a parabolic move higher in the yen. So we're not looking for very dramatic yen strength. And the reason for that is because um, I think Japan flows, so both investor flows, importer hedging flows have the potential to, to dampen yen strength next year. If I look at the dollar yen move in, in 2022, half of that move higher in dollar yen took place in the Tokyo trading session, uh, the Tokyo, you know, Tokyo time. And I think that really reflects the fact that, that importers have been consistent sellers of the yen on the back of a you know, 3-4% of GDP uh, trade deficit in Japan. The third and final point is, is BOJ, Bank of Japan policy, in particular yield curve control, YCC, that, that you just mentioned. So look, we're, we're at the hawkish end of the spectrum. We think BOJ is going to raise the, the ceiling of the YCC 10-year target to uh, 50 basis points in the first quarter next year. If that happens, mechanically, that's worth a few percent lower on dollar-yen. But I think the, you know, the key point here is how is that move telegraphed to the market? If this is seen as the first step of a series of moves towards normalization by the BOJ, um, we can potentially see a, you know, a, more, a more dramatic move lower on, on dollar yen. Along with the yen, uh, the other G10 currency we often speak about in the same breath is the Swiss franc, uh, both low-yielding funding currencies, uh, you know, erstwhile current account surplus and so on. Um, on the Swiss franc, is it a similar outlook to the yen? Um, or is it, is it, is, what's the delta on that franc story for next year? Yeah, I mean, the, the franc is the other currency where I think we, we hold a fairly bullish view going into next year. Um, so we're targeting, you know, 0.92 on, on euro Swissy. Um, look, if, if the yen is sensitive to yields, I think the point here is that the franc is sensitive to growth and, and in particular global growth expectations. So, 
you look at the the, the relationship between um, global growth, you know, things like the JP Morgan Global Growth Forecast, the FRI, that relationship with the Swiss trade weighted index, the, the, the Swiss NIR, has been very stable over the past couple of decades, so th through several business cycles. Um, and I guess the, the sort of the, the, the takeaway here is, if you're thinking about something like a one percentage point downgrade to JP Morgan Global Growth Forecast, that's worth about 3% on the franc TWI. So, you know, if we're thinking about the potential, not just for a U.S. recession, but a, a kind of a broader global downturn, um, I think to us, you know, staying long of the franc looks like a, a fairly, you know, attractive and a fairly reliable hedge going into next year. I guess the other point here is, is of course, policy and in particular SMB monetary policy. You know, the, the Swiss franc, um, we've got a consistently hawkish central bank effectively backstopping the currency here. And, and I don't mean that just via rate hikes, but also, you know, I think we need to think about the potential for franc purchase intervention next year, given that a stronger currency is one way for the SMB to achieve a, a kind of a broader tightening in, in financial conditions. So I think that's something that should be top of mind next year. Um, particularly given the fact that the SMB itself projects Swiss inflation to to be running well above well above target, um, you know, for, through pretty much the entirety of 2023. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so, Pat, what Ben talked about uh, in terms of the frank view uh, for 23, that seems like the polar opposite of uh, our view on on your favorite currency, at least in the second half of this year, the Great British Pound. Um, is there much great about the British pound uh, as far as 23 goes? Uh, you know, much like the question I posed, Mira, on the euro, have we seen the worst of sterling weakness this year or is there more to come? Yeah, thanks, Arindam. Um, so, yeah, just to recap kind of what happened this year, you know, obviously it was a pretty dismal year for the UK. Uh, stagflation hit the UK harder than just about any other economy in G10. And kind of to add insult to injury, uh, you know, the UK had to deal with the fallout from the guilt crisis, which was basically, you know, an unforced error. Um, so pretty challenging year. Um, so have we seen the worst of it? Um, well, to be fair, you know, at the peak of the fiscal crisis, you had cable track down to about 103.50. You know, that was in large part reflecting a, a fiscal risk premium that we estimate was worth about, you know, eight to 13 cents in cable kind of at the height of the at the height of the episode back in late September. Um, you know, in reality, we've moved on from those kind of crisis conditions. Um, Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have come in. They've stabilized the kind of immediate fiscal picture, um, unwinding a lot of what the trust administration had announced. So obviously, I think a retest of 103 from current one, 119 levels is, you know, that's a reasonably high bar. Um, that being said, uh, the UK definitely doesn't emerge from this whole thing unscathed. Uh, you know, the government recently announced that there's going to be fiscal tightening worth about 60 billion pounds over the coming years. It's about 2% of GDP. And that's essentially the largest fiscal tightening announced since the onset of the original fiscal austerity measures uh, under the Osborne administration back over a decade ago. Um, so on top of what is, you know, still a stagflationary backdrop in the UK, consumers still very much under pressure there. Um, Brexit still, um, you know, kind of creating its own unique drags for the UK. You're having this added kind of drag from the government having to tighten uh, in order to keep its finances in order. Uh, that's a unique um, and rather serious drag, in my view, uh, within the G10 space and and obviously negative from a currency perspective. So, so we see that manifesting over time and um, we have a cable target now below 110 uh, starting in the second half of next year. 
Um, so maybe that's not worse than the absolute peak crisis levels that we saw, you know, earlier in this year in cable, but certainly, you know, it's not a, a good outlook generally. We expect it to not only underperform uh, the dollar next year, but, you know, more broadly as well. Uh, we also have Euro sterling, you know, a few cents higher uh, by the end of the year as well, for example. That's, uh, you know, reasonably depressing, uh, Pat. Uh, but, uh, you know, if we can get any uplifting news out of the rest of Europe, uh, James Nelligan, uh, how do you view the other European effects that we've not touched upon so far, the Scandinavians? Uh, anything uh, better to uh, discuss in terms of the outlook for 23? I'm afraid um, not much uplifting views um, on my point, on my part. Um, we are we're quite bearish uh, Scandi FX um, going into next year. Um, there's four real main pillars um, that that drive that. We've obviously got expectations for further downgrades in in both regional and and global growth uh, prospects. We've got low carry. In, in both of the Scandi currencies when we think about where terminal rates um, are going to end up. Um, we've got weak housing markets there, uh, quite an idiosyncratic issue that that, that can constrain the, 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 the central banks. Um, and some, some quite interesting themes in terms of thinking about uh, a potentially lower beta to, to traditional drivers for, for the Scandi currencies. So um, in terms of growth, uh, we've, we've penciled in, or economists have penciled in, technical recession uh, for Sweden over winter. Um, and we've got growth below potential in Norway, but uh, they're avoiding recession there. Um, so that means just lower terminal rates are, are really in sight uh, for both central banks. Um, and one key factor there is the housing market. Um, so both economies with high household debt servicing ratios um, and you, you do have a savings buffer there, which which helps somewhat and, and provides somewhat of a cushion. But that comes at a time where where consumer confidence is 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 close to all time lows in in both economies, and so that that's there's just really isn't the willingness there from consumers to to dig into those savings. Um, in terms of stocky specifically, um, obviously highly geared to to the global manufacturing cycle as a, as a small um, open exporting economy. Um, that's that's bearish for stocky because you do have this combination of of high inventory, a glut of inventory that's been built up globally, really, at the same time as as order books can't really absorb that inventory uh, because stimulus withdrawal is 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 holding demand back. Um, so that's that's a bit of a bearish mix for for stocky. Um, for Nokia, I, th I think that you know there's an interesting theme in terms of beta to to traditional drivers. Um, obviously, one thing that's that's really taken home taken hold over the last few years is is ESG, the push for ESG. Um, and we can see that in, if we look at the energy investment share in Norway as a, as a share of total investment, it's been in consistent decline um, since really since the shale oil um, collapse. Um, and that we think has driven just a lower beta to oil. Um, and so we think, you know, if you, if you think about Noki from a, a macro scenario analysis perspective, Obviously, if oil falls, that that hurts Noki. But if oil rises, uh, we do see the beta there being lower, due to this this constraint that's that's in there in, in energy investment driven by uh, these ESG themes. Um, and so, just finally, in, in terms of the profile for for the year, the forecast profile, we we we're, we're bearish heading into next year on both currencies. Um, but potentially, you know, as as you get a situation where global central banks start to pause. 
and lower inflation kind of alleviates some of the pressure on growth. Um, you could see a bit of relief for, for Scandies over the summer. Um, but then the, the U.S. recession risks that we are flagging uh, for Q4 um, could mean it's, it's another volatile end of year um, for both currencies. That's it. That's it for Scandies. Okay, cool. Uh, thanks, James. So James touched upon this oil beta of, of Norway, and that reminds me, I haven't touched upon commodity FX uh, almost at all so far. Uh, Pat, uh, the Canadian dollar is under your personal coverage, so um, I'm interested in two things. First and foremost, your view on the loonie for next year. Uh, will we see uh, this year's uh, relative strength versus the rest of uh, G10 FX at least sustain uh, into 23? And then um, given your CAD view, do you see any scope for relative value within the broader commodity FX block, either involving CAD or otherwise? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rudam. Uh, in short, yeah, I think it's payback time for CAD. You know, it's been uh, the second best performer in G10 basically over the last two years. Uh, and certainly in the first half of this year, you know, you could call it a stagflation winner, right? It was a an energy exporter. Uh, local growth was resilient, uh, averaging about 3% annualized per quarter. Um, and the BOC was still leading the Fed at that point. Um, and so not surprisingly, dollar cat was flat. Cat performed significantly on the crosses for the first half. Um, but from a local standpoint, you know, the second half has gotten, uh, it's gotten choppier. Um, <clears throat> that resilience, um, in terms of the kind of the, the local domestic outlook has deteriorated. We've downgraded our growth. You know, there's signs of growing weakness in, in the consumer and then, I think very noticeably, um, you know, the BOC and the Fed, which had uh, basically previously been perceived as going toe to toe uh, throughout much of this year, they really decoupled. Uh, their terminal rates are now about 60 points different um, versus averaging basically uh, flat uh, in the first half of this year. Um, so the local story is, is certainly, I think, more challenging. And looking forward to 2023, I think it's only going to get worse. Um, you know, in particular, there's this kind of looming U.S. recession on top of kind of like, you know, a Canadian slowdown by itself. Obviously, in G10, Canada has, has the highest gearing uh, to the U.S. in terms of, you know, um, growth and exports, both in nominal and percent of GDP terms. I certainly think that's problematic. Um and then also, you know, just in terms of being used as potentially kind of like a, you know, a, a dollar proxy to selling, you know, uh, North American growth weakness, uh, you know, potential for maybe a perceptions of a Fed pivot. Um, you know, those conditions, like we've said, are not necessarily conducive to dollar weakness, uh, given the dollar's anti-cyclicality. Uh, but CAD is, of course, pro-cyclical. And so I think uh, in any kinds of growing signs of, you know, U.S. or Canadian growth weakness, I think, um, you know, CAD's going to come under pressure and so too Canadian yields. Um, so certainly a little bit more, uh, a little bit more bearish on CAD. Generally, we have it up to 140. And I think also, you know, I think it's a, it's a reasonably good play on the crosses. We have uh, CAD yen as well, for example, again, kind of tying into that North American growth and, and monetary policy themes. Um, and in addition to just, you know, very good, I think, valuations given CAD's outperformance, not just over the last two years, uh, but also probably over the last, you know, decade or so. It's about, on average, one and a half standard deviations above average uh, levels on crosses for the last decade. So I think there's some pretty good entry points there. And uh, yeah, you know, that kind of segues, I think, into your point about 
you know, thinking about the commodity block and FX uh, more generally, CAD did outperform this year. Um, you know, I think how you broke it down um, in terms of inform performance over over the crosses, um, I think that's reasonably fair. But at the end of the day, these pairs were ultimately quite correlated. But um, you know, if we expect some of that to come down a little bit, I think there's a little bit more for kind of uh, differentiation in terms of local stories. Um, I think, you know, this year as well, uh, Australia has done okay domestically, even if the currencies come under pressure. Um, we expect more of the same next year. I think Australia's growth is generally expected to outpace uh, the rest of G10. The RBA's proceeded in a manner where they haven't overdone it yet. Um, they haven't tightened the screws too much. And I think that ultimately does prove to be a bit uh, more currency positive. So I think if you have kind of the U.S. Uh, dragging Canadian growth down with it next year, uh, but Australia, you know, still being relatively resilient, you know, that's one option to, to go Aussie CAD. Um, certainly, we we still have question marks about uh, the outlook for New Zealand generally. And I, so Aussie Kiwi longs remain kind of a core component um, of our general strategy. Um, so yeah, certainly I think, uh, from our side, there's a little bit more increasing scope, um, for some intra-commodity RV, especially as, you know, I think, uh, the outlook for commodities themselves next year, uh, is a little bit more differentiated than, uh, what we had throughout much of this year. Um, but with that being said, you know, um, Aussie view obviously can't evolve entirely independent of the China story. Uh, so Rinda, maybe I'll pass it back to you, um. How are you thinking about Chinese growth right now? And uh, how does that manifest in the CNY view next year? Yeah, sure, Pat. Uh, see, for China, the, the hope is that 2023 will be a better year, a year of normalization as uh, we finally move away from uh, zero COVID and you get some uh, pragmatic policy support fostering um, you know, some sort of stabilization in the real estate sector. Uh, but uh, this is going to be a bumpy process, a stop-start process. Our economists uh, remain particularly worried about the scope for um, infections uh, spiking as uh, zero-COVID restrictions get lifted starting from spring onwards, hopefully. And that transition period will uh, will see uh, maybe intermittent uh, restrictions reimposed, um, which now manifests in um, a below-trend set of growth forecasts for next year. Again, we have China growth for 23 at 4%. Uh, from a CNY FX standpoint, uh, you know what we should not conflate is better medium-term reopening prospects with FX strength, because uh, as we've seen in other parts of Asia, for example, that have opened up in the second half of this year, uh, the first order uh, impact of opening up um, is that your balance of payment starts to weaken, A, because uh, your imports pick up, and B, in China's case, because uh, even if you do not get the actual outflow of tourists from China, markets may start to front run the possibility of Chinese outbound tourism picking up. And those two uh, effects should uh, you know, dampen China's current account surplus quite a bit. So we have dollar China going up to 720 by the middle of this year and somewhat and staying there for the, for the second half. Um, for other parts of EM that are dependent on China, I don't think reopening does a whole lot because uh, the services recovery you get as a result of reopening uh, in China, doesn't really have very many global spillovers. Um, and, and eventually, if you run into a U.S. recession, as we've been talking about, um, export demand, uh, both in China as well as the rest of Asia, you know, which uh, whose manufacturing chains run through China, uh, they're all probably going to suffer. Um, so you know, so far, we've uh, discussed a, a bunch of macro views around currencies. Uh, and Antonin, let me bring you into the conversation here. You'll look at uh, our systematic models for us. Uh, you know, tell us, 
how much of the views that you've heard so far gel or do not gel with what you see on your models? Uh, you know, if you had to tell our listeners about uh, one or two things on your systematic models radar that they should take away for next year, what would they be? Thank you, Arindam. To answer that, we need to take a step back on FX systematic signals this year. Regarding the main systematic strategies in FX, 2022 has been for sure an unusual year. The first striking aspect is the high number of signals which crosses historical high sigma level. Among, for instance, momentum signal, local equity signal, growth signals, in it reflects that FX was offering a lot more opportunities in 2022. And it's mostly a consequence of the higher macro vol driven by DM central bank divergences. So the first signal, which was to a certain extent a surprise this year, was carry. FX carry strategies on global portfolio printed double digit returns if the signal was properly adjusted for inflation or volatility. Carry is usually a high beta strategy. So in the context of minus 10 to minus 20% equity return, depending on the date, this performance was very unusual. The reason for that was that EMI yielders along the high trade before and become relatively more insulated to rising US yield and to growth and equity shocks. So the market valued positive high yielder typically BRL. On the other hand, funders such as Euro Orient suffered the comparison with US yield and all this drive carry up. Uh, on the other side of this equation, you find FX value strategies which buy cheap currencies and sell expensive ones. Those strategies positive negative returns all year or at least before the last US CPI print. So the reason is the opposite of as carry. Central banks pushed some currency to become richer and richer like the dollar and others to be weaker and weaker like the yen. In 2023, actually, we expect for this carry value dynamic to reverse. And next year, a lot of central banks will be reaching their peak and the dynamic of inflation and policy rates increase will slow down. So this should par partially remove the two aspects we mentioned before, the pressure on funders and the relative insulation of EMI yielders. So this uh, reversion is also supported by other aspects, like the valuation dispersion in G10 is at multi-decades high, and the carry can be even more challenged by the high dispersion in external balances. Deficits have become larger, especially in the M space. So overall, on the systematic side, the dynamic we mentioned are in line with the macro views for CHF and Yen as those currencies are cheap and to a certain extent for card as well. We are slightly more bearish for the dollar due to the valuation issue. Finally, a key point to keep in mind is that monitoring the balance of country with positive and negative growth momentum is always relevant. It was relevant this year and uh, those kind of synchronized up or down trades should be monitored as well uh, next year. So that said, my question to you, Arindam, now is, is this rotation away from carry towards value consistent with your view for FX vol in 2023? Do you see vol marching higher as carry trades begin to falter? Hey, it's, it's a tough one, Antolin. Uh, I think uh, you know, it's got shades of Mira's directional dollar view here. On the one hand, uh, FX vols are now uh, you know, reasonably high, they're 80th percentile of long-term history. So much better adjusted to the current risk-unfriendly risk conditions uh, than a year earlier. Yet, uh, as you say, a world in which carry falters is not one that is conducive to balls going down in a very material fashion. Right? So given the uh, pull of recession risks, uh, high interest rate levels, as well as vol of interest rates, and certainly not to be ignored, you know, very poor liquidity conditions across markets. You know, Just like uh, central banks, I think a high hold is, is a good characterization of how FX falls might uh, evolve next year. Uh, in terms of how we are thinking about uh, strategizing for falls into 23, we are going into uh, the first part of the year with a tactical short bias, A, given levels, but uh, B, it's mostly tactical because we tend to get 
uh, seasonal supply of wall from corporates uh, early on in the year. Uh, but this is not something that I think is going to last through the entire year. At a more durable level, we look for a couple of things to change. First, as uh, EM carries phenomenal performance from this year, as you described, starts to fade as we approach a recession. The very uh, tight EMDM wall gap, which is sitting at uh, multi-year lows, should begin to mean revert and widen. And second, uh, to Ben's point, uh, the cross-yen balls have had a very hard time this year as the yen has sold off in unison with other currencies. But uh, if, if Ben is right on an eventual dolly and inflection at some point next year, and our view of high beta yen cross weakness pans out, then those cross-yen balls should begin to perform better as well. So with that, we come to the end of this uh, edition of the podcast. Thanks very much for listening in. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on November 23, 2022.